My name is Andrea Bumstead and I am a member at Restore Temecula. If you are new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe the church is not an event, but a family that you belong to. So we would love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help in any way, please visit our website at www.RestoreTemecula.com and click on contact. We also have a mobile app with resources, including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on the Apple or Android app store. With all of that said, we hope you enjoy the message. really good to see everybody's faces. Uh, I had a really cool moment uh, when we were praising Jesus this morning. We were singing that song, God With Us, you know? And it's, I mean, we, we sing that song fairly regularly. And maybe because it's finally December and Christmas is around the corner and those kinds of things. But like, there's a really powerful reality to recognizing the truth that Jesus is with us. Like, his spirit is with us. Like, he's with you. I don't know, man. It, I just had a moment where I was like, oh, you are. You're like, you're with me. And there's a reality that, like, we're spiritual beings and we're physical beings. And I think so oftentimes I find myself in this juxtaposition or this kind of, like, battle between I just find myself at times exclusively living out of the physical and not the spiritual. And I think we just miss so much of his presence, of his power, of his goodness, of his glory when we do that. And I don't know, I just, I want to, this Christmas, I, I really want to be a man who kind of lives in both of those realms all the time and experiences all of his grace and his goodness. And just the fact that he'd be with somebody like me is bonkers. I don't know. Maybe somebody needed to hear that this morning. He's with you. No matter what you're going through, he's with you. All right, this morning, we are going to start a new series I'm really excited about, we are really excited about, uh, called The King and His Kingdom. And we're going to be going through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew is spectacular. It's amazing. Some of you might be thinking, why are we going through another gospel? There's four gospel accounts, these eyewitness accounts of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, his ministry, you know, everything that he, not everything, but a lot of the things that he said, a lot of the things that he did. And we just finished up the gospel according to the apostle John last August. And it took us like three years to get through it. We took a bunch of breaks in between strategically to kind of cover different things. But you might be thinking, okay, why are we starting another gospel? Like another gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why are we starting Matthew? Uh, The reason is because we want to spend as much time as possible examining Jesus. Jesus is like the entire Bible is about Jesus. The whole thing, Old Testament, New Testament, like it all points to Jesus because Jesus is the point. He's the point of the scriptures. He's the point of your life. He's the point of my life. He's the center of all things for from him and through him and to him are all all things the scripture says. So we can't look at Jesus enough. (laughs) So we're going to be jumping into this series uh, through the gospel of Matthew. When we were going through John, we entitled that series, Jesus Is. And every week we looked at like a different facet of who Jesus is, of what he's like. If If you've ever looked at like a precious stone, you know, like a diamond, it's got all these you know, faces and fates, faces to it. And if you shine the light in, in this regard, it'll like, you know, prism this way and all these different facets of who Jesus is. That was, that was what we did. That's how we approached John's gospel. Kind of like examining a diamond, right? One of the major themes in Matthew's gospel is this focus on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Now, when I say the kingdom of God, if you're a Christian in the room, if you're a follower of Jesus, when I say kingdom of God, like, if somebody asked you, what's the kingdom of God, what would you say? There's a lot of kind of different opinions in the church of what the kingdom of God actually is. 
in the, in the most simple terms, a kingdom is the rule and the reign of a specific king. Okay? I don't know if you know this, but you and I, we were created to live within the kingdom of God. Under the lordship of Jesus, the king of kings. And hear me, not just like after we die, but right now. Every moment of your life. And, and don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying like completely, you know, because there's still plenty of sin and brokenness the side of heaven until Jesus returns again. But I'm talking like we live in this overlap now. The kingdom of God overlapped with the kingdom of darkness. It, the theologians describe it as the already but not yet. Jesus inaugurating his kingdom, his rule, his reign, his way in the midst of a plethora of examples of things that aren't his way, his rule, his way, his reign. This series is about us learning as much as we possibly can about how to live within the kingdom of God as we, as we eagerly await his return. Okay, so the cool thing, another cool thing about going through this series through Matthew is it's going to give us the opportunity to do a bunch of little like mini series. Matthew's, it's so full. It's, it's really long. Okay, if John took us three years, Matthew's probably going to take us like 15. Uh, so brace yourselves. But it's cool because like instead of just doing one week on the Beatitudes, we're going to do like a mini series going through each of the Beatitudes and really like kind of dive, diving deep into those because I think there, there's so much richness and goodness uh, we're going to like, be able to do a mini-series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is the greatest sermon in the history of the world. And I don't know if you know this, but it's all about the kingdom of God and what it's really like. There's the Olivet Discourse. There's a bunch of different mini-series that we're going to go through through Matthew. Now, this morning, we're going to begin where Matthew begins, and that's with Advent. If you've spent any time uh, in the church, you know Advent is the season leading up to Christmas, right? Advent, Advent means arrival. And what are we, so, who's, who's, whose arrival are we celebrating at Christmas? Let me hear you. Jesus. Jesus, baby. Jesus. And baby Jesus, that's actually funny. Jesus, man, the Savior of the world, right? The arrival of the promised Savior of the world. So today we're actually going to do one of these little mini-series. We're going to start a mini-series like I talked about. We're going to do a two-week mini-series on Advent within this kind of the King and His Kingdom series through Matthew's Gospel. So before I jump into the passage today, I want to just kind of set the table with who's the author, man? Who is Matthew? You've heard his name, I'm sure. If you've read the New Testament at all, he pops up in several locations. Who is Matthew? Another name for Matthew, like another name that he went by was Levi. And this is like a theme that we see in Scripture, right? You have, you have Paul, the apostle, who was once who? Saul. There's like a name change. There's like a transformation. It's this beautiful picture, right? So Saul became Paul. Uh, what about Peter, another apostle? Who was he before? Simon, yeah. Simon becomes Peter. Saul becomes Paul. Levi becomes Matthew, okay? Levi was his tribal name. Matthew was his personal name. Now, his vocation, uh, he, I don't know if you know this, he was an expert in denim. That's where we get leave. I'm kidding. I'm totally joking. That was a great dad joke, and you guys totally missed it. Totally missed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Youth, that was for you. Awesome dad joke. Coming at you hot. Uh, no, but really, Matthew, his vocation, he was a tax collector. <laughs> Wait for it. Wait for it. Uh, Matthew's vocation, he's a tax collector. Uh, I don't think we really give enough. Uh, I don't think we're as aware as we should be of how, I don't know, gnarly that was in their culture at the time of uh, the first century. Let me try to explain to you really quickly what a tax collector was. You had the Roman government. Okay, they're the superpower at the time. They're occupying all these different people groups all around the known world. And they're occupying the Jewish people as well in the Middle East, right? In and around Jerusalem. And so what, what a tax collector was, was they, would, they were some, like a local, uh, someone of that people group who, would, who basically worked for Rome to collect the taxes on behalf of the Romans from their people group. Okay? So tax collectors would have been really, really wealthy. And their wealth would have been gained by essentially betraying their own people. 
all right? And what they would do is they would, they would, the Romans were like notorious for like radically taxing the people that they would occupy, or the, yeah, the people groups they would occupy. We, we, we get upset about our taxes here in America, like don't raise our taxes, all that kind of stuff. But like the Romans would excessively tax these people, like crazy amounts. And what they, these tax collectors would do, they would be employed and deployed to collect those taxes. And then what they would do is they would collect, let's say I'm going to tax Gabe, I'm a tax collector, and it's like, okay, uh, I need 50% of your income. Gabe comes up and he's just like, dang, dude, like, okay. Um, the Romans only asked for 40, I'm keeping 10% from me. So they're skimming off the top. That's how they got so wealthy, these tax collectors, okay? So you can imagine... The Jew, he, Matthew is a Jew, yet he's working for Rome and he's exploiting his own people and getting wealthy by skimming off the top from them. So you can imagine they, they didn't, Jews didn't think very highly of tax collectors, okay? They, in fact, they hated tax collectors. They were the worst of the worst, all right? They were the people that were most despised by society. That's Matthew. And it's, it's this man, this, this, this tax collector that Jesus seeks out. It, it's this man, the despised, that Jesus wants. Can we just, uh, just pause for a second? Like, there's nobody like Jesus. There's nobody like him. He's the greatest. He's the most glorious. He's the most compassionate. He sees things differently than we do oftentimes. He's a different kind of king that rules and reigns in a different kind of kingdom. So Matthew, right, he has, this, he has this amazing encounter with Jesus and it transforms his life, okay? He leaves his old way of life behind and he becomes a disciple of Jesus. A disciple is someone who's learning to enjoy Jesus, obey Jesus, and operate like Jesus in every single area of life. That's Matthew's story. And it's the story of every Christian, leaving your old life behind of sin and rebellion against God and embracing his forgiveness, his grace, and learning to enjoy him, obey him, and operate like him in every area of life. Okay? And it's that kind of stuff, Jesus engaging with tax collectors and befriending tax collectors and calling tax collectors to come and follow him, that's the stuff that freaked out the Jewish leaders at the time. They didn't have a concept for that. Okay? It's because Jesus would hang out with tax collectors. And, and there's this really cool picture. We'll get to it later in Matthew, but there's this really cool scene where Jesus is dining with, with sinners and tax collectors and these Jewish leaders that have no concept for this. They're like, why are you doing this? You know, and Jesus' response famously is, it's not those who are well who need a doctor. It's those who are sick. So hear me when you are the most sick you've ever been spiritually, when you're the most rebellious, when you're the most dirty, when you're the most wrong, when you're the most like <laughs> sinful, Jesus looks upon you with grace and mercy. It's who he is and he desires you. Matthew's a remarkable story of transformation. He's one of the 12 apostles, right? That Jesus chooses to, to then send out and bring the gospel to the nations. And he's the author of this gospel account an eyewitness account of the life and ministry of Jesus. So without further ado, grab your Bibles. We're going to jump into Matthew starting in chapter one, verse one. And I'm really excited about this. Um, before we jump into the scriptures, I just want to pray. So will you join me? I want to invite God to teach us through his spirit. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that, uh, God, you, you put on flesh in the person of Jesus to reconcile and renew all things. You didn't have to, you chose to. I pray uh, that you would teach us about yourself this morning. I pray that through, um, through our time together, that maybe we just encounter you in ways that alter us, that shape us, that form us. And God, I don't want to do anything that gets in the way of what your desire is this morning. So help us, help me. Give us eyes to see you, ears to hear you, and open our hearts to actually experience you. We love you. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, so really quick, like a little bit of context here. Matthew's going to start off his gospel account with a genealogy. 
Okay, that's not like Aladdin. That's not like, you know, three wishes. A genealogy is like a family tree. All right, so he's going to start off with this family tree. And here's the thing. Most modern readers just kind of skip over this. Because what do you care, right? It's just the family tree. It's just someone's lineage. Um, there's, a, there's a unique kind of pride, I think, for Americans that live on either coast. So I think there's a unique pride for Americans that live on the West Coast and then a unique pride for Americans that live on the East Coast. And here's why I think that is because I've heard people oftentimes who live on one of the coasts refer to middle America as flyover country. You ever heard that? Middle America, just, it's just flyover country. You just, it's there to fly over as you're making your way to the other coast. Nothing really to see there. Kind of like, oh man, the weather's lame and whatever. It's like flyover country, right? It's funny, I was talking with one of the dads on Amelia's softball team this last season. And he was talking to me about, he's like, hey, so you know, where'd you grow up? I was like, actually, I grew up here in the Temecula Valley. And he's like, oh man, he's like, I remember driving through here like 20 years ago. There was nothing here. I'm like, yeah, tell me about it. I grew up here. There was nothing here. He's like, that's just like a, it was like a pass through town when you're on your way to San Diego or LA or Orange County or whatever. That same concept, right? There's, there's nothing really to see here. I don't know about you. I love our valley. This is such a special, beautiful, amazing place. The reason I bring that up is because in the same way people will joke around, you know, Temecula is a, a, a pass-through, drive-through town, or Middle America is a fly it's flyover country. There's not really much to see there. To modern readers like you and I, the passage that we're about to read, this genealogy, it's the equivalent of flyover country. Oh, there's not much to see here. It's just a list of names. It's just kind of a town that you pass through. It's not really important, but hear me. To first century Jewish readers, the beauty of this passage that we're about to read, it's not obvious to us as modern readers, but it would have provoked awe to a first century Jew. So, what is so exciting about a list of names What's so beautiful about a genealogy? Let's find out. Matthew chapter one, starting in verse one, says this. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We're gonna pause there, okay? So after that first verse, just one, the first century Jewish reader is captivated, okay? You and I, cool, what's gonna happen, right? They're captivated, here's why. Because the first words in this, in this verse, in the original Greek, are literally book of Genesis. Genesis means beginning. So it's, it's, it's a book of the beginning of Jesus, a book of the origin of Jesus Christ. A first century Jewish reader would have instantly been reminded of something. It would have taken him back to Genesis the very first book of the Bible, of God's word. And specifically, it would have taken him back to Genesis 3.15, which is arguably the greatest promise that you'll see in the scriptures. And I want to set the table. If you remember, if you, some of you already know where I'm going with this with Genesis 3.15, but what happens is that in the very beginning, in Genesis, God creates everything. He creates people. He creates plants and animals and you name it. He creates everything and it's good. It's the way it's supposed to be. Man is in perfect relationship with mankind, with each other, perfect relationship with God, and perfect relationship with creation. It's the way things are supposed to be. And then what happens? Sin, right? Man and woman choose to rebel against God. They choose their way instead of his way, and it introduces sin and brokenness into the world, and now things are no longer the way they're supposed to be. Right in that moment, right? You guys know the story, right? Satan tempts Eve Adam sins as well, and now sin is unleashed. Right in that moment, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God, he's speaking to Satan, and he says this. Check it out, Genesis 3, 15. I will put hostility between you and the woman, speaking to Satan, between your offspring and her offspring. If you have a Bible, underline offspring. He, the offspring from the woman, will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. In other words, God makes a promise. God promises that through Eve's offspring, there will be one who crushes and defeats Satan. Like your heel would crush the head of the serpent. 
it's this promise of a promised one. This is, this is the first promise of the Messiah that shows up in the Bible, okay? And then you fast forward nine chapters later into Genesis chapter 12. God brings a little bit more clarity to this promise of a Messiah. And he tells Abraham, he says, all of the people of the, of, of the earth will be blessed through you. So in other words, through Abraham's offspring. So he's bringing more clarity that through offspring of specific people, God's going to bless the whole world and he's going to basically defeat Satan once and for all. Now, first century Jews reading Matthew chapter one, man, they would have these promises from Genesis at the forefront of their mind, man. Like these people have been waiting, guys, generations for these promises to be fulfilled. Look back again at verse one. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of, it's essentially offspring, the offspring of David, the son of the offspring of Abraham. Now, when it says Christ there, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. They're one and the same, okay? Now, what Christ and Messiah, what that means is it means anointed one. Uh, anointed is to be set apart for special divine use. So in the Old Testament, prior to Jesus, you'd have prophets, you'd have priests, and you'd have kings. All right? Prophets, priests, and kings were known as God's anointed or the anointed ones. Right? So prophets, they would, they would speak to God's people on God's behalf. Priests, they were, they were mediators between God and man. So they would represent man to God and represent God to man. They're a mediator, right? And kings, they were what? They were rulers with ultimate authority. Prophet, priests, and kings. Anointed one. Uh, men set apart for special divine use. And ceremonially, what they would do is they would anoint them with oil. So it would literally like, uh, put oil on their head. It's a symbol of them being set apart for special divine use. The Christ the Messiah is the anointed one. Not just a prophet, the prophet. Not just a priest, the priest. Not just a king, the king. And not just anointed with oil, but anointed with the spirit of God. So guys, when a first century Jew reads verse one, an account of, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, they're not reading it. They're not reading Christ as though it's Jesus' last name. They're reading about Matthew's claim that the Christ, the promised one that the Jewish people have been waiting for since the days of Genesis 3, had arrived. And then Matthew's going to break it down, go on to verse 2. Here he goes with the genealogy. Abraham fathered Isaac. When it says fathered there, it's referring to a, either a direct son or like a later descendant, okay? So Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Jacob, really quickly, if you remember Bible trivia, who is Jacob? Jacob is Israel. So Jacob, this name change theme throughout the Bible, right? Jacob has his name changed to Israel and his 12 sons are the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, that's why it says here, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah and his brothers. Judah's one of the 12 brothers that are the 12 tribes of Israel, essentially Jacob. Sons of Jacob, that's, that's Israel. It's the people of God, the chosen people of God here, okay? Verse three, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. I'm gonna mess up a lot of these names just so you know. Stay with me. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. Okay, pause again. So Matthew, he takes this genealogy from Abraham, right? God said, I'm going to bless the world through you. It's the birth of the Israelite people through Abraham, right? He takes the genealogy from Abraham all the way to King David. And now we come into the royal bloodline. Let's keep rolling here. Again, uh, in verse six, King David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. 
We'll come back to that. Verse 7, Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Whatever. Yep. Okay. (laughs) Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Pause again. So Matthew then takes the genealogy. He goes Abraham to King David, and then he starts the royal line, okay? Matthew takes that genealogy through the royal Israelite dynasty to its demise at the hands of the Babylonians. These are real people. I know I'm butchering their names and stuff, which is kind of disrespectful, but listen, these are real, these are all kings. Israelite kings who over the course of several generations, that nation falls. They go in exile into the, uh, at the hands of the Babylonians, okay? So they go from, the Israelites, they go from a royal kingdom to being in exile in Babylon. Let's keep going, verse 12. Now we start the exile period. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel, Shealtiel fathered Jerubabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eliezer. Eliezer fathered Matan. Matan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. There's that word again. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. That's your passage. That's the passage of scripture that modern readers fly over because there's not much there to see. I want to talk about three things that are there. It's not all, that's not an exhaustive list for you this morning, but I want to talk about three things that are there that listen to me. If you see them, oh, they're so beautiful. They're so good. The first thing, uh, did, you, did you notice the list is almost exclusively men, but five times it talks about mom. Did you catch it? So-and-so fathered so-and-so by and they insert mom's name, okay? Uh, five times, really quickly. In verse three, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Verse five, Solomon fathered Boaz by Rahab. That's mom. Uh, and then later in verse five, Boaz fathered Oben by Ruth. That's mom. Verse six, King David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife, Again, Bible, uh, Bible trivia. Who is Uriah's wife? What's her name? Bathsheba. Yeah, if you remember the story. We'll get into that in just a second. That's Bathsheba. That's mom. And then verse 16, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Five moms included in the geneal- genealogy. Why? It's a great question to ask when you're reading the scriptures. Why? Who were these women? Let's talk about it really quickly. Okay, Tamar. If you remember the story, uh, brace yourselves, kiddos. Okay? <clears throat> Parents, I should have brought this to you sooner. Sorry, I'll ask for forgiveness. If you, know where I, if you know the story of Tamar, you know where I'm going. Tamar, she poses as a prostitute to her father-in-law, Judah, and they end up having two sons. That's Tamar. Rahab, if you remember the story of Rahab, she was the Gentile, and that means non-Jew, She was the Gentile prostitute who aided the Israelite spies in the whole conquest of Jericho. Right, that epic story in the book of Joshua where they go around Jericho and the walls fall. Rahab played a huge part in that. Gentile prostitute Ruth was a Gentile, again, non-Jew, and she was a widow. She was the widow who ends up marrying Boaz, right? If you remember the story, the, the, the kinsman redeemer. And Ruth actually ends up becoming King David's great-grandmother. Uriah's wife, that's Bathsheba, right? We just talked about her. 
If you remember the story, King David, right? All, all the soldiers are away at war. He stays back. He sees her on the roof. He wants her. He desires her. And so King David has an affair with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. And essentially, to cover it up, he organizes the murder of her husband, Uriah. So King David sleeps with another man's wife, that's Bathsheba, and he has her then husband murdered to cover it up. So Bathsheba, she's either an adulterer like David, or she's a victim of sexual assault. One of the two. And then there's Mary the mother of Jesus, right? The woman who gives birth to a son before being married to Joseph. Okay? No doubt her community shamed her. But what was conceived in her was not the result of sexual sin. It was a miraculous virgin birth conceived by God. Guys, all the names in this genealogy, they're they're real people. And every person has a story. You have a story. I have a story filled with ups, filled with downs. And so do these people. I want you to see something. I want you to see this genealogy. It's, it's comprised of men and it's comprised of women. It's comprised of adulterers and prostitutes. It's comprised of heroes and, and kings. It's, com- it's comprised of, of rich people and poor people, of Jews and Gentiles, of broken and sinful people of all kinds. The first thing that this genealogy tells us, hear me, is that Jesus is the savior of all. God is gracious to and through broken and sinful people like you and me. No one's off limits. So maybe you're here and there's some like reoccurring sin in your life and you're feeling guilt and shame about it. Maybe there's some things in your past where you like try to block it out because there's shame involved. And there's some like, ah, this is just really bad. And if people knew this, then they wouldn't respect me. They wouldn't love me. Like maybe, just maybe, there's some of us are in hiding, even in the room. Can Can I just encourage you with something? God isn't finished with you. He's not done with you. He can still use you no matter, what, no matter what sin you've engaged in, no matter how you've been sinned against, no matter what the sin or the brokenness is in your life, you have something in common with these people. And that is that God can and does use sinful and broken people. He's gracious to and through sinful and broken people. The second thing that this genealogy tells us is the simple kind of classic Advent thing is that God keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. And here's the thing though, it doesn't always look the way we think it's gonna look. I don't know if you're, if you're anything like me, like I really like to control my life. I want it to look a certain way. Things happen in, in specific timing. Like, like this morning, like <clears throat> um, me and Ed were both really looking forward to this morning. Vivian comes down with a cold, like a cough this morning. So she's here kind of taking care of you. That's like, ah, perfect timing. Why couldn't this have happened on Wednesday? She could have nursed it and she could be here at gathering on Sunday. Things don't always go the way we want them to go. (laughs) But God always keeps his promises. It doesn't always look the way we think it's going to look. Sometimes it happens through people and situations and scenarios that you'd least expect I mean, think about King David for a second. Think about his story. Think about him. David was the young shepherd boy that no one ever expected to be king. Nobody saw that one coming, except for the Lord. The story of Ruth, like guys, she was a widow. I don't think we understand the cultural implications of what it meant to be a widow back then. It's different now. But back then, man, a widow essentially was like the most vulnerable person in society, orphans and widows. Yet God birthed the Christ, the Messiah, through Gentiles, prostitutes, adulterers, and sinners like you and like me. 
Even when things are messy, even when we don't understand, even when it doesn't make sense to us, God is at work fulfilling his promises, friends. I hope that brings you comfort, even when you don't understand. We sing, we sing that song all the time, you know? Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. Friends, God keeping his promises, it transcends our vantage point. It transcends our feelings. It transcends our current circumstances. Guys, this genealogy shows us something really powerful. It shows us that God will not be stopped. He stays true to his word. So hear me, maybe you're in a season where like there's some significant disappointment. Things have not gone the way you wanted them to go. Maybe in a relationship. Maybe in your job. Maybe in your finances. Maybe in your health. Maybe with your children. Maybe in your marriage. With your friendships. With your mental health. Maybe you're in a season of disappointment. Maybe you're in a season of doubt. Maybe there are things, maybe things like aren't going the way that you expected that they would go. Can you hear me just for a second? That's a really vulnerable and scary place to be. But can I just tell you something? God hasn't forgotten about you. He sees you. He sees things differently than you do. He sees you differently than you do. And he always keeps his promises. Can I just remind you of some of the promises of God in Scripture for just a second? I want to bless you with God's word. Let me read you. I'm going to read you a handful of promises that God always keeps that are unchanging. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8. Check this out. The Lord is the one who will go before you. He will be with you. We sang it this morning. God with us. He will not leave you or abandon you. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Listen to this. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So far, we have a promise of him never leaving you, abandoning you, forsaking you. We have a promise of you coming to him that will result in peace. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 and 33. I can't wait to preach on this in this series. It says this. This is the words of Jesus, by the way. So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles, the non-Jews, eagerly seek all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. What does he say? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Seeking him and his ways, the promises, your needs will be met. Proverbs chapter, excuse me, Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him. I love that language. And he will make your path straight. Oh, you want direction and guidance in your life? God makes a promise. Trust him. Don't rely on your own understanding. And know him, be with him, engage with him, be in relationship and friendship with him. He'll he'll show you which way to go. And finally, Romans chapter 8, verses 28. This is out of the NIV. And we know that all things, can can somebody say all things? things. That includes everything, okay? We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. For people who love God, he works good all things out for good, even the most devastating things. That's a promise. 
And this, I just gave you like five or so. That's like, there's so many more, guys. These incredibly beautiful promises from the Lord. This genealogy, friends, it demonstrates the profound truth that God keeps his promises, even if we don't see it yet. And the final thing. Uh, I want to do this. I'm going to call the band up right now, if that's cool. Why don't you guys come on up? You guys have to use the restroom, don't you? Okay. That was, that was really smooth. We're a really sleek production here, guys. I don't know if you noticed this. Super, super sleek production. I want to call them up before I get into my final point, okay? My final thing is this. I want you to consider something, okay? I want you to consider the length of time from that original Genesis 3.15 promise, right? that God would send the Christ, that God would send the Messiah, the promised one to crush Satan's head, to defeat him once and for all. I want you to consider the length of time from that Genesis 3.15 promise being made until the coming of the Christ. Hear me. Thousands of years. Literally dozens of generations This begs the question, why? Why does God take so long? We took our girls to Disneyland earlier this week. Um, long story. But <laughs> I know there's some uh, diehard Disney fans in the room. So brace yourselves. I might be a little critical. Um, there's, there's something about Disneyland, man. And there's just a vibe. And I think so many, and we're talking about this. It's like my childhood, there's like memories involved there. So it's like, I feel like they're capitalizing on our memories and like charging you exorbitant amounts to be able to engage with them again. And, but whatever, it is what it is. Supply and demand, man. Supply and demand. But we were talking about this and there's still so many things about Disneyland that are wonderful and beautiful and like really special. But some things have changed too. Um, I think there's some, maybe some like slight departures, things that were once of value aren't necessarily as much of a value anymore. There's been some shifts. But one of the things that has not changed over the years at Disneyland is the intense amount of waiting, <laughs> okay? I'm of the opinion that we should, we should petition to change the name of Disneyland to Waiting Land. And here's why. Because you wait to get into the park. You wait to use the bathroom. You wait to buy food. You wait to go on the ride. You wait, you wait, you wait. And then when you're leaving the park, you wait. And then when you go to the tram, you wait. And then when you take, get off the tram, you sit in your car to leave the parking lot or the parking garage. And what do you do? You wait. Okay. So Disneyland shall henceforth be known as waiting land. Why is there so much waiting at Disneyland? Why does everything take so long? It's so that other people can share in the experience. It's so that other people can participate. The longer the wait, the greater number of people that participate, right? That is, of course, until the park closes. And the opportunity to participate is now gone. Friends, do you realize that God could have like fully out or fully carried out his plan of redemption like already if he wanted to? He could have already like handled it. It's done. The, 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 the promised Messiah, the Christ coming to forgive and deliver people from sin and death. That's the first advent, 
right? Advent means arrival. The first advent, God coming to earth to forgive, like to give himself as a ransom for many, to live the perfect life in your place and in my place that we could never live and then to die the death that we deserve in our place. He absorbing our punishment for sin. That's the first advent, right? And then you have the second advent, the one that we're waiting for, the one that we're anticipating, right? The second coming of Christ, different than the first advent, how? The first advent, Jesus comes to redeem, to renew, to save, to forgive. The second advent, King Jesus comes to judge. To punish and to remove evil from creation. Either eternity with God in his kingdom or damnation. Guys, do you see why the, like the original kind of first century Jewish reader would have been so excited reading this? Because they didn't miss out. They didn't miss out. They were included in God's plan of redemption. All the waiting, thousands of years, dozens of generations, why? So that they would be included. And hear me, the same thing is true of you. The same thing is true of you. Oh, you know this, there's an eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God, and God wants you there. Not only was he willing to give his body and his blood in your place, but hear me, he was willing to wait generations for you. Think about this. I want you to consider your genealogy. If someone, if someone was writing about you the way that Matthew is writing about Jesus' genealogy, I want you to consider your genealogy. Your great-grandparents and great, or your grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents all the way back. I want you to consider it for just a minute, okay? You are a product of your ancestors before you, all right? Everything that you are biologically is a result of those that have gone before you. So hear me, for you to exist the way that you do, and I would say you exist gloriously. The Bible says you're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're wonderful. There's nobody like you in the whole world. Hear me say that. There's nobody like you in the whole world. For you to exist the way that you do required the generations before you. You are not an accident. God formed you in your mother's womb and he formed her in her mother's womb. The reason God has waited generations is because it took generations to get to you. Do you see this? Why is there so much waiting? Why does it take so long? So that other people can experience God's kingdom. Do you see the patient grace of God on display in a list of names? Listen, God so desires to redeem you. How do we know? Because he was willing to do two of the most radical things to accomplish that redemption. Probably the two things in life that you and I avoid the most. Die and wait. My final point. This genealogy, it teaches us something beautiful. It teaches us that God patiently waits for his people. Why? Because he loves them and he desires them. God patiently waits for you. He desires you. He wants you. If he didn't, he would have put this, he would have put an end to all this a long time ago. But putting an end to all of this meant banishing evil, removing evil. 
then if he did that, he'd have to remove people like me and people like you. But instead, he'd offered a way for us. Our sin absorbed by Jesus. Jesus punished for my transgressions, for the ways that I disobey God, for the ways that I reject him and reject others. Why? So that I can ride the ride. I can be with him in his kingdom forever. He patiently waits for you to receive him as the Christ, the anointed one, the, the, the promised savior, the king. Guys, hear me. This is true for us as, the, as Christians. People need to know this. People don't know their value. What they do is they find themselves scrolling on some device with some arbitrary source that communicates that their value is determined by something futile. Their value is determined by how they look. Guess what? Beauty fades. Their value is determined by how much money they have. The economy is so fragile. Their value is determined by their performance. Guess what happens over time? You're just not as good as you used to be. I tried playing basketball the other day. (laughs) Good God. (laughs) Friends, people need to know this. Are there people in your life, like straight up, are there people in your life who don't know the love of God for them? I would bet there's two people, there's two types of people in the room. One type of person is, yeah, but you're too afraid to talk about Jesus. Don't do it alone. Do it in community. Invite them into your community. People who know and love and experience Jesus on the regular and they'll experience him. Or there's the other people. You don't have any non-Christian friends. That's a dangerous place to be for a missionary. Okay? Are there people in your life who don't know the love of God for them? Because hear me, I know I'm dipping into my time here, but this is okay. I don't want to get into like the whole, man, like things are really bad the last couple of years. Like Jesus is coming tomorrow. Like I'm not making any predictions, but let me just say this. We're closer today to the second advent, to the second coming of Jesus. We're closer today than we were yesterday. And things are bonkers. Things are broken. Things are really messed up. Friends, <laughs> when Disneyland closes, the opportunity to participate goes away. When Jesus comes back to remove evil once and for all, the opportunity to participate in his kingdom goes away. <laughs> People are precious and they're valuable, and if they don't know the love of God, oh, They need to know. So do you see the grace here? That's my question. Can you see the grace here in a list of names and a genealogy? Jesus came to offer forgiveness to all who would receive him. His perfect life in their place, his death that they deserve in their place. And he patiently waited generations for you. And there's still people that he's waiting on. So here's, here's what I want to leave you with. Christmas is coming. This is, we're, we're celebrating Advent. This is the Advent season, the arrival, arrival of, of God coming to forgive and to redeem and to renew and to inaugurate his kingdom already but not yet. As we approach Christmas this year, what if, what if we spent the rest of this month feeling gratitude? Like what if we spent the rest of this month feeling gratitude that God is gracious to and through broken and sinful people? What if we spent the rest of this month feeling gratitude that God keeps his promises no matter what, even if we don't see it yet? What if we spent the rest of this month genuinely feeling gratitude that God was willing to die for you and to wait for you so that you could participate in his eternal kingdom? both now and forever. I think we'd have a really Merry Christmas.
Let's pray. God, help us to see your goodness anew. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see how good you are, how gracious you are, how merciful you are. Matthew's gospel, gospel means good news. He wrote this whole book that we're jumping into so that there would be a proclamation of good news. The good news is that you're gracious. The good news is that you offer forgiveness. The good news is that you offer your performance in our place to redeem us. The good news is you offer us a, 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 an identity that we don't have to earn for ourselves. You gift it to us. The good news is that we get to live within your kingdom forever where things are the way they're supposed to be, where there's unity and there's love and there's peace. God, I pray that you would break our heart for people in our lives for whom we love that don't know the love of God for them. <laughs> I asked the question like when we started, like if somebody asked you what the kingdom of God is, how would you respond? God, I pray that you would teach us about your kingdom and you would give us a strong desire to be people who live in it continuously and who invite people to join us. Your rule, your reign, your grace, your mercy. You're the king. Teach us about your kingdom. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen. All right, guys. What we're going to do for the next uh, 15, 20 minutes is just respond to God. This is a time for you to engage with him in deep, meaningful ways. Um, if the prayer team would kind of make their way to the back, there's going to be men and women in the back that are available to pray for you um, with whatever you're facing, with whatever you're going for. Maybe there's people, maybe, maybe you have kind of a, a hard time receiving God's grace and forgiveness in your life. Maybe, maybe just maybe he wants you to receive that this morning. If there's people in your life that you have a, like a deep pain for because they don't know the love of Jesus, let these men and women pray for you. The band's gonna serve us and lead us. We're gonna praise God because he's been so gracious to and through broken and sinful people like us. He loves us with his mercy and his grace. And then uh, after we do that for about 15 or 20 minutes, Herrick will be up and he'll pass dress and close us, okay? Have your way, guys. Do what you wanna do but respond to the love of God together, okay? Enjoy him. Love you very much. Yeah, we thank you, Father, that you're faithful and that you sent your son for us, the snake crusher, the one who came to make everything new. These promises that you've given us are so Incredible, they're hard to believe. The challenge isn't that it's, they're too small, it's that they're too big. And we thank you that in Jesus we see that they're true and they are being fulfilled. And we thank you for that. And we can live as people who've been given really good promises. And God will deliver, He's trustworthy. We love you and we thank you. Let me pray. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Get to close this out. If there's ministry still happening, feel free to finish up. For those of us that are uh, here sitting, I want to I want to close with with a with a quick story that's just been on my mind this whole morning, and it's the story of Tamar, and she is in the genealogy of Jesus, which is quite a thing because if you've ever read her story, it's that part of the Bible that you're just like. Is this real life? Is this actually in the Bible? It's, it's, I don't even know. I was thinking, I couldn't think of an appropriate way to describe it. So I'm just going to, it's like car wreck, train, train wreck, car crash. Uh, I'm going to spend too much time on this. The point is, 
what happened to Tamar was horrendous. So she's a woman who she was dependent upon Judah, the the great you know father in in the great patriarch, the great man Judah. Jesus is the 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 line from the tribe of Judah. She was dependent on Judah to fulfill his promises, to have a hope for a life. She was a widow, and she needed Judah to come through. Judah had made a promise to her. Hey, she was a widow. She was like, you can have my son, my youngest. There's a whole whole law in the Bible to protect widows who were very vulnerable. And so Judah was like, I'll take care of you, just wait. And in the scriptures, you know what it says? It says that Judah had no intention of actually doing that. So Judah was a deceiver. And he mistreated Tamar terribly. Tamar had no security, no hope for a future because Judah was lying to her. And I've been thinking about Tamar all day. Tamar sometimes gets a bad rap because of what she did. She, she pretended to be a prostitute and that's how, she got, you know, that's how she got pregnant. That was the only way for her to actually receive what she needed. And there was terrible pain. And here's what I wrote. Here's my point in saying all this. When people, even God's people, someone like Judah, when they vacate, when they abdicate, when they don't fulfill their responsibility, their God-given responsibility to people, there's terrible pain involved. And I know that so many of you have experienced terrible pain of people abdicating, whether that's fathers or husbands um, or, or people in authority or whatever. There's terrible pain associated with that. And if the story of Tamar teaches us anything. It's that the Lord loves to redeem the mistreated, the marginalized, the abused, the forgotten. Those people who just on a daily basis are just figuring it out. They're just surviving. And he loves to restore their dignity by uniting them to Jesus himself. Tamar's in the genealogy of Jesus. What's my point? God sees the unseen and he does spectacular things through them. I'm going to say that again. God sees the unseen and loves to do spectacular things through them. And I believe if I'm, if I'm discerning what God is, is highlighting correctly, that he wants you to feel seen if that's you, if this resonates with you. So we've got men and women in the back who would love to pray for you. And I will be right up here if you want to, if, I'd love to pray for you as well, if that's you. So I'm going to close with that, just that reality that the genealogy of Jesus, the genesis of Jesus, his story. It's for sinners, certainly. It's for Judah too. Judah needed a savior. And God changed that man, made him a new person. You can read that story later if you want to. And he's for the unseen. He sees the unseen people. So if that's you, go get prayer. I believe he wants to meet with you today. And just let him love you. He's trustworthy. So I'm going to pray and close this out. Father, I want to thank you that you are the God who sees. You see the unseen. You love to redeem people's pain. You love to forgive the sinner. And you love to lift up the marginalized, those who have been put down, those who are trivialized and forgotten. You came for us all. You came for the world. You came for the Jews, for the Gentiles. You came for everybody the privileged, the people who don't have privilege, all the things in between. And so I pray that here today, men and women, young people, that we would all experience your love wherever we're at. And I especially pray for those who feel unseen, that they would feel seen by you today, that you love the Tamars of this world who've just had to figure it out, who've just had to survive really bad situations. We love you and we thank you. Thank you that you rose. You came, you died, you rose, and you're coming back. And I thank you that we get to live in the in-between, marveling at what you did for us in your first arrival and longing for the second one where you'll finish the job and you'll make all things new. Would you help us to be a people who are prepared for you, the people who are ready, the people who love your coming, like your next, your, 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 your second coming, the next one. You prepare our hearts for that, even in this season. We love you. In your name, amen. Okay.
If that's you, please go get prayer. There's people in the back. I'll be right up here. For everyone else, we love you. Hope you enjoy your Sunday. Go grab your kids if you've got kids back there.